This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Thursday, February 22nd, 2024. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown. Coming to you on AMI-tv, I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, the Zero Project Conference kicked off this week in Vienna, Austria. Marco Flalo and the Access Tech Live crew are on the ground. We'll tell you all about it. The Bob Marley biopic, One Love, is the number one film at the North American box office. Entertainment critic Michael McNeely will review it. And speaking of reviews, the British limited series One Day is the number one trend on Netflix. Entertainment critic Amy Amanti will share her thoughts. That and so much more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours. But the show begins with the top story of the day. A bunch of data points for you. Data, data, data. Numbers. Doing some crunching this morning like a bunch of accountants. There are a few new data points about grocery prices and people's grocery shopping habits. Firstly, some Leger polling data about what Canadians are experiencing at the store. John Kennedy breaks it down. That's compared to 28% of survey participants who say they think it's about the same, and 5% who believe grocery inflation is easing. The survey asked more than 1,500 Canadians how they feel about the cost of groceries over a three-day period last week. While respondents say they're feeling the pinch, they differ in who they think is to blame. 27% of respondents say it's the fault of global economic factors like inflation and supply chain issues, while 26% say it's grocery chains increasing for profit margins while 23% blame the federal government. Last July, the Liberal government rolled out a grocery store rebate to help ease the pressure. John Kennedy, the Canadian Press. And a new study from Dalhousie University shows that Canadians are shopping at more stores to find discounts on their groceries. Brenda Molina-Navidad has that side of the story. Almost 30% of respondents say they exclusively choose their grocery stores based on in-store discounts and promotions. And the report found almost 60% of Canadians consistently seek discounted food products while shopping in-store, with preferences for discounts on expiring or clearance items. The report says fresh produce is the most purchased discounted item, followed closely by meat products, packaged and canned goods, and dairy products. Flyers remain the most common way for shoppers to discover discounts. Brenda Molina-Navidad, The Canadian Press. A story like that is such a reminder of why I wish I had the capacity to drive. As someone who's legally blind and can't drive, I'm pretty much limited to the closest grocery store to me. And uh, there are not a lot of discounts to be found, but that's just the way the cookie crumbles sometimes. Although maybe that's an extension of the idea of the disability tax, that it costs more to live with a disability than not to live with a disability. But let's put a pin in that one. Here's one more piece of data for you. This is different, but Stats Canada has been releasing a whole bunch of data this week from the most recent census, including a nugget about how millennials 
are now the biggest age demographic in the country. Nojud Amelise digs a bit deeper into the data. The average age in Canada dropped slightly between July 1st, 2022 and July 1st, 2023 for the first time since 1958. However, Statistics Canada says the number and proportion of people aged 65 years and older have continued to rise. The federal agency says the share of millennials and Generation Z is increasing, while the reverse is true for baby boomers and Generation X. Those trends have helped increase the share of the working age population, which increased in 2023 after steadily declining over the previous 15 years. Nujud in Press, Ottawa. All right, that's a win for the millennials. We're number one. We're number one. No, we're not. Okay, over to the daily polls at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Wednesday, you were asked about some of your flying habits. How often do you check your bag when flying? 57% of you said always, 14% of you said sometimes, 0% of you said never, and 29% of you said only when I have to. Kelly writes in on Facebook, only if I absolutely have to, I tend to only check bags on the way home. That way, if it's lost for months, at least I'm at home. Allison says, always, it's impossible to pack light with my disability. Hey, maybe there's another example of the disability tax there. Brett writes in, unfortunately, always, I'd rather not have to to though. Philip chimes in always because when I'm traveling somewhere, I am so stressed out sometimes as a blind person and I got to make myself always sure that I don't forget anything. Thanks to everybody who chimed in in the comments section at Accessible Media Inc. Don't forget, you can also do that on Twitter at Accessible Media. Today's daily poll is all about televised political speeches. Last night, Alberta Premier Danielle Smith did a province-wide televised speech. So the question is, how would you feel about notable politicians doing frequent, long-form televised, radio, or online appearances? When I say notable, I, I think we should probably limit the scope here a little bit to things like premiers, prime ministers, uh, mayors. Frequent, long-form, not just clips or sound bites. I mean long-form conversations, either via interview or even just speech. What Alberta Premier Danielle Smith did last night was just talk directly to the people about some of her priorities. My general feeling on this would be good. Maybe it's because I'm a little bit of a political nerd. Maybe it's because I believe that politics should be more than just little social media clips or sound bites. I like the idea of someone being able to dive a little bit deep into the granular detail of their policy ideas and policy priorities. You know, for a long time, the Fords, especially Trump, uh, Toronto Mayor Doug Ford used to do a weekly radio appearance. Now, he mostly talked about football, but it was at least an opportunity to hear from the mayor. Uh, the Premier of Alberta, Jason Kenney, used to do a call-in radio show a couple times a month. Danielle Smith still does that sometimes. I think there'd be some real merit in regular, televised, digital or radio appearances by politicians where they get a chance to dive into things a little bit and not try to boil things down to little sound bites. So I say good. Laura Bain, I've laid my cards on the table there a little bit. What do you think? 
Yeah, I think I feel good also, Dave, with just a couple of sort of concerns. Uh, so I also appreciate appreciate sort of having access to that direct information that's not uh, filtered through a journalist, like no shade on journalists at all. But it sort of makes me think back uh, to just as a point of reference to the daily COVID briefings that we had. Yeah, yeah. And um, I did really appreciate sort of having it right from the horse's mouth, what was going on. And, and a lot of people tuned into that who... Uh, otherwise might not be politically engaged. So that was the other aspect to it is that I, I think it could lead to more people sort of being informed and engaged who might not otherwise seek out that information. Like say if you have it airing on a national broadcaster at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, I think you will get more people tuning in. But on the other hand, you know, you said sort of limiting it, limiting it to premiers and uh, mayors and things like that. I, I think it is likely to privilege, of course, uh, elected officials mm, and perhaps mm. they've earned that privilege. But I worry a little bit just thinking here in Nova Scotia, we have a conservative premier, Tim Houston, who I'm not a huge fan of. But I think that if we start having him making regular appearances, people will become more familiar with him. And then when it comes election time, maybe not necessarily vote based on comparing policies, but on, you know, the person that they know that they're more familiar with. But mm, so mm. I guess good, but with those sort of just acknowledgement that it is going to privilege uh, you know, whoever is in office. I th that's a really good point, because typically when you do politics in journalism, especially around election time, there's there's an expectation of equal coverage or fair coverage. So I wonder if maybe there's room there for an opposition rebuttal, leader of the opposition, or other par other major party leaders being given, maybe not the same, so same time frame, but at least being given an opportunity to rebut what was just said. That, that's, that's a really good caveat. Laura, I like that caveat a lot. Alex Smith, what do you think? So I, I kind of view it as, well, we already kind of have this. Like if you are a frequent viewer of a 24-hour national like Canadian broadcaster, like, you know, the CBC network or, or CTV news channel, you'll see these kind of these longer form briefings or, or announcements or things like that. You will hear from these political leaders in a longer form because they'll just cover whatever event or whatever speech they are at. Typically, it will be sort of announcement of something and you'll, you'll get the more long form uh, kind of uh, voicers from these leaders. Now, you, you obviously, as it gets disseminated to the different kind of outlets and, and, and put together and packaged for later newscasts, obviously it gets trimmed down to a soundbite here or there, gets repackaged, repurposed. Um, but I, I, so for me, I'm always, I'm, I'm kind of like, well, I, I don't care because I feel like we already kind of have it. And, and I agree mm. with Laura's point, you know, there is, there could be an inherent bias of, you know, the, the, uh, elected official having more access to, to media, to be able to broadcast their message. I, I think the one concern I would have is if it becomes an everyday type of, um, uh, kind of method for them just to kind of. Uh, put out whatever political message right, they want right. on the day. Like, I, I want it grounded in, in facts. And, and part of why I like when you have, you know, a press conference where journalists can ask questions or, or offer insight, that you, you fact check. And, and that's the big thing. It's like you just don't want a political leader going out there and just saying whatever they want. And, and without any kind of, uh, kind of rebuttal or, or kind of, uh, like, you know, confirmation of facts if, if they are saying something that is right or wrong. What do you think about the Colin show idea that Jason Kenney used to do in Alberta and Daniel Smith still does? It's that radio Colin show where actual listeners are calling in and asking the mm -hmm. politicians questions. 
I, I, I love that because that, that is something that it shows you have a direct connection to an elected official as it should be. You know, now whether or not you actually get through and you can ask him a question. <laughs> yeah, it's that, produced. That's a different, it's that's a different it's, thing, it's produced is, and vetted a little bit, no doubt. Exactly. But there there is that that um kind of more of that open door policy that we have in Canada typically that you wouldn't find in, you know, the US sort of so to speak. Like there is at least the appearance that there is a bit more of a tangible connection. You could go to the office of your representative. You can call in to your elected leader who you, your vote matters. You are a constituent within their riding in, in, in their uh, kind of jurisdiction. So you should have access to them. So I love it. Thank you very much to both you guys for your thoughts on that one. Let's hear from you out there in listener land in the viewer vortex. Find the show at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can also chime in via email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or pick up the phone, one 509 4545, you used to call me on my cell phone. Make that hotline bling. 1-866-509-4545. Coming up next, One Day is a British limited series that is trending number one on Netflix. Entertainment critic Amy Amanti will review it. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. One Day is a limited series available on Netflix. Here's a clip from the trailer. Sun illuminates a girl's face. It's one of the great cosmic mysteries. She smiles. How is that someone can go from being a total stranger to being the most important person in your life? She and a boy share a smile at a party. They have a picnic on a grassy hill. What do you want to be when you party? Am I allowed to say rich? He meets a group of screaming girls. What about you? I want to do something that actually makes a difference. Change the world, you mean? Maybe just my own tiny corner of it. Based on the global bestseller, looking tired, the girl works at a computer. You have all these people telling you how great you are. I'm smart and funny talented. Oi. I've been telling you for years. They lie on the grass together. So why don't you believe it? Oh, gosh, you can always get me excited by playing some music by the Cranberries. Well done for a movie trailer right there. Entertainment critic Amy Amanti has a review of One Day. Hey, good morning, Amy. Good morning, Dave. Amy, I can't imagine it was just the Cranberries music in the trailer. Why'd you press play on this one? You know, the the title of this film was was uh was ringing bells in my ear. And I was like, oh, why do I know the title of this film? Of course, there's a book by the same name, but it wasn't that. It was that there was another movie that was made. Uh, 2011, I believe it was, there was a movie starring Anne Hathaway by the same name, um, which I had seen probably in 2011 um, and had totally forgotten about because it wasn't that noteworthy. Um, so I thought that I would uh, check this one out to see if it was, uh, you know, 
the same difference wah, wah, or not, right? Okay. So um, I was curious. I was curious. I, that, that's a very interesting uh, setting of the standard there. Can this be better than wah, wah, and, uh, and then moving from there? So it's, it's clear that this is a very individual-driven storytelling. This is about mm. chemistry between young actors. How did that chemistry come across on screen and through dialogue? So you've got these two young British actors, literally 18, 19 years old. Um, Ambika Maud, um, who plays our Emma, and um, played playing uh, our Dex or Dexter is Leo Woodall. And um, so you might know Leo from uh, the White Lotus series or, um, I mean, they don't have a lot of credits. They're so yeah, young. Yeah. And I was blown away by the chemistry of these two young performers you know i've said it before in that sometimes when you have actors that are unseasoned you strip away this like ego thing that actors have to do the performance performy thing um and it just is like this raw magic these two are like magic together and um and it's so compelling to watch uh, and listen to and um, and that what really was one of the big draws after watching the first episode I thought to myself oh is this going to be kind of teeny bopperish um, am I going to be interested in this kind of genre and you know the minute I met these two characters and I was like oh geez there's something kind of magical here mm. and that really got me glued right from the beginning was was trying to um, it was diving into the, this fact that there's this like pool of chemistry that you can just marinate in, which was really beautiful. It's a limited series, but it's still a fairly mm -hmm. large series, 14 episodes, mm -hmm. and it does play with time. What did you think about the way in which the film played with the passage of time? Yeah, so yeah, 14 episodes, about a half an hour an episode, so really digestible. Um, what would they say, binge-worthy, right? Really easy to binge, um, which I found myself doing uh, at some point. So they meet in 1988 and uh, on July the 15th at their graduation party from Edinburgh University. So they've gone to, Ed uh, to university for four years together and sort of, you know, you cross path somebody in the hall and you don't really know them but yeah. he has quite a reputation in the school as being the sort of don juan of the school <laughs> and she's kind of the, the nerdy girl so like you know that's a classic trope um uh that we see in these kinds of shows but so they meet sort of on a on a, a graduation night on a dance floor and uh they were sort of meant to have a one night stand and that doesn't happen you know, she wants to talk all night and he just wants to get in her pants and that doesn't happen. And so they form this friendship and we see them on July 15th, you know, year after year after year after year. So the passage of time means that we are only seeing them on July the 15th every year through the passage of, of, the, of time through several decades as they grow, as they mature, as they build chemistry and relationship over and over and over again, wondering if these two will ever come together or how that will be because they're exploring who they are as individuals in their lives and uh, what happens to them in their lives. So that does a really excellent job of making both of these individuals become kind of their own lived in people, um, which is really great. And it also does a really good job. I was watching this with a, with a sighted individual in my family. So, you know, we're going from 1988 you know, a couple of decades. So they start in their 20s and they go to sort of their late 30s, maybe even early 40s mm. um, of, of gently 
aging these characters in their faces, in their clothing styles, in the sounds of their voices, these very subtle changes in their mannerisms. Um, so it's not overwhelming. You're not seeing these huge overwhelming changes, but you're seeing sort of the maturity and their growth and their characterization. It's really lovely. And it just happens so organically that you're not sort of um, shattered as it's happening. You're not like, oh my gosh, well, like that happened like too mm, quickly, right? Mm. It just happens so subtly. Um, so I thought it was really, really like it was really well done. This may be diving like too granularly, but I but I find that style choice and storytelling to be fascinating. I'm mm. curious if there was other representation of the passage of time, just in terms of saying, okay, now we're in 1995. Was there something that kind of planted you in the timeline beyond their own evolution? Uh, well, I mean, from a from a filming perspective um you know you get the date <laughs> yeah, uh, that, yeah that always that always appears but you know you get the passage of time from these characters you get the passage of time from other characters in their lives that come and go um you get the passage of time because the story can be fragmented so yeah, in one, yeah. in one in one episode you might uh, be talking about say a mother character and then in another episode um they're picking up on something that's happened to a mother character um that you don't know that's happened because you've missed something in the year right yeah, so they follow yeah. up you're like oh really oh what's happened or somebody's died but you didn't see them die because a year's gone by or something like that has happened um and so you haven't seen the impact of the character or a funeral or an accident or any of those pieces that could have happened in somebody's life but then it's just mentioned sort of in passing mm. um, and so the passage of time uh is noted in sort of these subtle moments and as a viewer and a listener, you kind of go, well, yeah, of course that's expected. These things are gonna happen through the passage of time. Um, and you don't really go, oh shoot, I wish I had seen that moment because it's just like you would have, you know, reconnected with an old friend and you're sitting at a dinner table and they're telling you what's happened in their their life over the year. Or like you get the holiday, you know, the the Christmas letter every year, but what's happened in our family for the right, last year. Right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. like Cole's notes of what's happened. So you get these kind of brief little um, bullet points of things that have just happened that have been kind of noteworthy for them, but it's all about the moment of when they come together that mm. they really focus on. So yeah, there's sort of these little whispers of things that happen, um, and then there's the moments that they, they that they come together that they really focus on. Super cool. Uh, what yeah. about the audio description? Audio description, of course, is really helpful when you have movies that are the passage of time. Um, this one also does a really great job with the diversity description because our our heroine, our heroine, our, our lead female is of South Asian descent and our male character is um, a, a white guy. And this plays into socioeconomic um, status uh, with the two of them and racial status with the two of them that plays in a little bit as they grow and develop into their human, uh, their, their, their lived in humans. Um, and so without having that sort of diversity lens, you miss out on those pieces as they build in their careers and face barriers in their lives or face, not face, but like experience privilege in their lives um, that sort of makes them very different from each other. Um, so yeah, that's a really important, important piece of it as well. Yeah, really great job. I, I can tell that there was a lot here that you really liked. <laughs> so, so, so like specifically what worked, but also maybe what's the counterbalance? What didn't work? Yeah, so I mean, the, the passage of time piece works quite well um, in this sort of storytelling, uh, uh, I guess, genre of filmmaking. Um, 
I think what we lose a little bit in this, because each of these, you know, 30 minute episodes is like a little, uh, and one, one of the critics talked about it as being like a little vignette, right? Sort of a little, um, uh, a little sonnet, I think is what he called it, of of where they are in their life in that year, which I thought was a really nice reference to uh, what, what we were looking at. Um, and, uh, uh, but what happens is that, Sometimes it drags just a little bit um, in these little sonnets. Um, not too much, but sometimes it can drag just a little bit because um, the chemistry is certainly there um, and it changes, but sometimes it's sort of like, yeah, we saw this sort of same chemistry in another sonnet um, because chemistry, when you have it, you have it. And so we're like, yeah, we got it. They, they have chemistry, right? Mm -hmm. So that kind of repeats itself. And so I thought that in some moments um, there was maybe too much of the repetition of the same chemistry, but then it starts to sort of diversify itself when you get the conflict in there. The conflict is sort of where the richness comes in. You know, the chemistry is great. We all want to see happy, happy, happy chemistry, but the conflict is where the richness comes in, right? Um, conflict is what we want to see in every piece of art that we watch. We want to see flawed characters. We want to see the conflict between characters um, and how that chemistry plays into the conflict. So that's what it does really, really well. Um, and then, you know, um, there are these moments where the music of it sort of leads you and music does this in everything but in this particular series i think the music um leads us down this path of how we should feel about what's happening in these sort of sonnets um maybe a little bit too much i don't think it needs to be that sort of over overwhelmingly mm, uh, leading us down that path little heavy but little heavy-handed the the viewer the listener we're not um you know we're smarter than sometimes uh we're given credit for um, I learned this in, even in my own solo show when my director says, you know, you got to give your audience some credit. You don't have to like spoon feed them everything that will figure it out. Um, and so I'm keenly aware of this more now than I've ever been in my life. So, you know, I'm a little bit more aware than than the director and the writers think that I am. Mm. And so sometimes I think like, I'm not a child, I get it, right? Um, so there was a little <laughs> bit of that that I felt that I was being spoon fed a little bit too much. Um, and other than that, you know, uh, if anybody's seen the other movie or read the book, it's it doesn't have a happy ending. And so, um, uh, you know, after after following this journey, there is a sort of a life lesson that's learned at the end of this. And you've spent so many so much time with these characters that you kind of feel a little bit let down. That's not that's not a uh, uh, um, a result of the storytelling mechanism. That's that's a plot function. Um, but still, you can't help but feel kind of like, oh, really? That's yeah, it. Yeah. Right. Um, that, but that, that's the way the story is written. That's, that's and, what they want you to feel. And that's okay. Not every film needs yeah. to have a happy ending. Not every series Absolutely. needs to be happy and sunshine because uh, yeah. real life is not always uh, sunshine and rainbows. Uh, Amy, yeah. so with with that said, you, you've you've counterbalanced this nicely. Do you rec <laughs> do you recommend it? Because because it's been recommended to me by a few people. I've yeah. not hit play yet. I uh, there's a lot going on right now. But like I yeah. uh, I I've not hit play. But I've been told that I would really like it. Do you recommend it? I really like this. I'm not much of a like romantic, sappy, sappy kind of person often, um, but I made space for this one because of its unique sort of storytelling style. And I really, really liked it. Um, but I've actually heard other people who were like, yeah, it wasn't for me, but I would make space for it. But you have to give it kind of the first couple of episodes to settle in um, before you go, nah, not for me. So give it kind of three, four episodes before you go, 
yeah, I'm not going to watch the rest of this. So that would be my recommendation is give it some time and, and you'll either decide if it's for you or not. But I, I would say, yeah, it's worth it's worth at least the first four episodes. This is the beauty. If you have Netflix, what does it yeah. cost you other than time to press play? Absolutely. <laughs> no, time is valuable, though. It is, but if you're an insomniac like me and you have troubles falling asleep, then it can be like, you know, it's better than counting sheep. <laughs> I don't know if uh, a series being cure for insomnia is a stunning endorsement. Amy, thank you for this. Have a lovely day. Yeah, you too, Dave. <laughs> That's Amy Amanti's review of the Netflix limited series One Day. So you can find that streaming on the old Netflix machine. Coming up after the break, it's the regional news update. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The morning business minute and weather story of the day are right around the corner. But first, here's the regional news update. Starting in British Columbia, the B.C. government is tabling its budget today. Finance Minister Katrine Conroy says there will not be any budget cuts. Here's her rationale. From our perspective, it is not the right time to make cuts to people. It is not the right time to make cuts to services. It's not the right time to increase taxes. It is the right time to support people. BC is slated to have an election in the fall. Over to the prairies, the federal government has committed $175 million to fast-track the construction of 5,200 housing units in Edmonton. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says the investment represents a major policy shift. One of the challenges we're facing right now with this housing crisis is uh, over the past decades, the federal governments of different stripes uh, stepped back from the business of ensuring that housing was properly built right across the country in affordable ways, meeting the supply needs, meeting the growth of the country. Edmonton City Council passed a motion last month declaring a housing emergency. And finally, in the Atlantic provinces, a Halifax MP says relocating Canada Post's facility in the north end of the city could open federal land for thousands of new homes. John Kennedy takes a closer look. Andy Fillmore says the relocation of Canada Post's sorting facility could create an unparalleled opportunity for housing development. He notes city planners have been creating a conceptual plan for the area that shows capacity for over 5,000 new housing units, accommodating up to 10,000 residents. Fillmore says he's already raised the idea with several parties, including Canada Post leadership, federal government ministers, and the adjacent property owners. John Kennedy, The Canadian Press. Thank you very much. John, coming up in 60 seconds, Alex Smythe has the weather story of the day. But first, here's Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minutes. 
Canada's main stock index moved lower yesterday on weakness in financial and tech stocks, but Japan's key index surged to an all-time high this morning. Toronto's TSX index lost 45 points yesterday to close at 21,172. New York's Dow Jones average gained 48 points and the Nasdaq gave back 49. In Tokyo this morning, though, the Nikkei index surged 836 points, or 2.2 percent, past that that it saw in late 1989 at the height of Japan's post-war economic boom. Foreign investors have been plunging in seeking bargains thanks to the yen's weakness against the U.S. dollar. And our dollar is trading overseas this morning higher at 74.33 cents U.S. Two-thirds of respondents to a new online survey by Leger says they believe inflation is getting worse in the aisles of Canada's grocery stores. That's compared to 28% of survey participants who think it's about the same. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo. Thank you very much, Karen. From business to weather, let's bring in Alex Smythe. Alex, you got something a little bit different today. Yeah, Dave, uh, instead of talking the day-to-day weather, we are talking about wildfires. And it may be a bit of a surprise to talk about this during the winter, because normally winter is a time of reprieve and, uh, you know, a time to kind of recharge and reset after wildfire season takes place in the summer and uh, sometimes into the fall. But because of the historic nature of last year's wildfire season, there are... and the fact that there are still drought-like conditions out west, we still have active wildfires in the middle of winter. There are 92 wildfires currently in British Columbia and 54 in Alberta. Now, normally, as I said, like this would be something that the the winter weather, the, the snow, the rain, the cooler temperatures would douse these flames, but that hasn't been the case because of the drought-like conditions the West has experienced. So this has led these flames to carry on throughout the winter, and, and sometimes because the heat, the intensity of these wildfires are so strong that the the embers, the smoldering, that can linger for months at a time. And so firefighters and, and crews are still battling these blazes, trying to kind of get them under control while we are in the winter uh, season so that come spring and summer, we can they can focus on the other areas that are really going to be a bit of a a kind of a, a risk and a danger to the public so this is kind of a, a a harbinger of what we can potentially expect going forward if we're dealing with a, a number nearly 150 or 160 wildfires currently in the winter time there are going to be major concerns come summer that uh, this wildfire season may be as bad as last year's. So uh, we'll just have to kind of uh, track this and hopefully there is more precipitation that comes to help manage these wildfires for the time being. But uh, it doesn't bode well if we look towards the future, Dave. Alex, thank you for this report. That's Alex Smythe at the Weather Desk coming up after the break. A production of Becca is coming to Théâtre New Brunswick. Community reporter Natalie Fougère gives you the scoop. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. There are so many examples of where real life creates great art. There's going to be a play in the New Brunswick area called Becca that is a prime example of this. Becca is presented by Theatre New Brunswick and Théâtre Populaire d'Acadie. Moncton community reporter Natalie Fougère has some more details. Say good morning, Natalie. Good morning, Dave. So, Natalie, what's the inspiration behind Becca? Well, so the inspiration behind it is that the play, it's kind of like a play documentary that's based on uh, Rebecca Schofield, which was a, a teenager that was living in Riverview, New Brunswick, and she was battling a brain cancer. And instead of focusing on the negative of uh, her cancer, she decided to um, create a movement that was called Becca Told Me To. And this movement was actually uh, to uh, promote and to, for people to do acts of kindness and to go on social media and use that hashtag, Becca told me to. And that play is actually inspired around Rebecca and all the wonderful light that she brought into the world. What are some of your memories around the Becca told me to movement? Uh, Becca told me to, I'll always remember that every time, for example, that I would be in a drive through for example, and that the person would decide to pay for, for me, I've had that happen a couple of times that I went for a coffee and the person in front of me had paid for me. And it was exactly because of that. It was to, to give back, to, to pay for somebody else or just to do good deeds to help people. And it was all around that. Becca told me to. So it was doing like in, in Rebecca's honor. Mm, yeah, I like that kindness. What, what do you what do you think the the lessons can be learned here from the life of Rebecca Scofield? Well, is that she never gave first of all that like around her life is that she never gave up no matter what happened and even if she uh, did end up uh, losing her battle that she really battled until the end and to focus on the positive. And I guess the lesson to learn is that there's still light uh, that can be seen in these times where there's a lot of negative things and mm. a lot of darkness going on that we can still see some light and that there's still good people around to do acts of kindness. Theatre New Brunswick and Théâtre Populaire d'Acadie are collaborating on this one to make it a bilingual play. What do you think of that approach? I think that is such an excellent approach. Being bilingual myself, I think it's very it's very important and it's a great idea because uh, really the original uh, behind that, the original idea is that uh, Becca's parents, like uh, her mom was from Northern New Brunswick and her father was from Southern New Brunswick. So they decided to put both cultures together and uh, to have it in both French and English. And if someone can only understand one language, especially on the visual uh, point of view, there's going to be subtitles that will be pre uh, that'll be um, uh, uh, presented. Like if someone speaks in English, it'll be written in French and vice versa. TNB.NB.CA slash Becca. There's going to be a bunch of shows across the province throughout the month of February. So the website again is TNB.NB.CA slash Becca. Okay, 
from arts and culture to food. Natalie, you came across a service here called Sysgrainable that's all about upcycling food items, especially when it comes to baking mixes and barley flour. Natalie, who's behind this, this first of all, this great pun, Sysgrainable? So Sysgrainable has been created by two co-founders that both live in BC. It's um, Mark Wandler and Clinton Bishop. And uh, what's uh, very wonderful about that is that they both have a different set of skills that can be brought together. So it really promotes partnership. So uh, one of them has uh, like grown up on a farm, on a barley farm, and he takes care of the day-to-day -day operations. And the other one is uh, is responsible for all the great ideas, like for all the different things of, of how to uh, get it going. So these two co-founders got together and had the values of having something that was healthy and also environmentally friendly at the same time, so it promotes recycling, and at the same time, it's a very, uh, it's a very healthy and uh, delicious foods. Natalie, I'm a uh, city boy through and through. Not a lot of time on barley farms. I, I need your help and guidance here. What's spent grain? Yes, so this was actually a new concept for me as well. I actually just recently heard about it, is that when beer is crafted and um, once uh, like the grain that's um, uh, uh, left over from when they uh, make the beer, uh, it's uh, it, it consider it's um, represents a lot of the uh, food waste. So there's a lot of that grain that's actually wasted. And uh, what they what sustainable does is that they take these grains, which is actually the healthiest uh, part of it. it it's a very healthy because it's high in fiber and uh, protein as well. Uh, they take that grain and then they they process it and um, put some uh, baking mixes together. How do you think this fits into the bigger picture of food waste and food sustainability? I think that if there'd be more concepts like that, there's less food that would be wasted. And at the same time, if people can get the health benefits of, uh, of having these foods, uh, I guess the, and apparently the initial, uh, the initial goal was for people who are diabetic. So if it can improve the health at the same time, plus uh, um, reduce a lot of the food waste, uh, that's a win-win situation really. Natalie, you are someone who is naturally something of a joiner. So you found out about Sustainable. Have you tried any of their products yet? I have. I actually ended up ordering the banana bread mix and the oh, um, oh, pancake waffle mm, mix. Mm. <laughs> and it's so good. They're both very delicious. They also have a chocolate chip cookie mix that I still have yet to try. Oh, oh my gosh, banana bread and uh, waffles. Like now we're really talking my language over here. Natalie, I didn't have a very big breakfast this morning. What are you doing to me? What are you doing to me, Natalie? Uh, okay, I'm going to give the <laughs> points of contact here. Sustainable.com. Sustainable.com. I'm going to spell it for y'all because, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a pun here. S-U-S-G-R-A-I-N-A-B-L-E. Sustainable. Com. I love this pun so, so much. All right, Natalie, we've done a little bit of culture, a little bit of food, but now you want to talk a little bit about a personal story. 
about your recent diagnosis of sleep apnea. What were some of the challenges you were facing leading up to the diagnosis? So within the last few years, I was having more and more trouble sleeping, especially when it came to falling asleep. It could take me maybe like almost two hours uh, to fall asleep. So I was wondering what was going on and why that every time I was trying to fall asleep, I would get kind of like brutally awoken, like I would jump and then Mm. I would get out of breath, right? So I was noticing that I was kind of stopping breathing. So what I decided to do, and I left it hanging on there for a while. I should have done this earlier, but I ended up in October. I went to my family doctor and uh, I took, uh, I, I was able to take the sleep apnea test. And my goodness, did I ever have it? It was very severe. In one of the hours of the test, I'd stopped breathing 173 times, I oh believe. Oh my gosh. Oh it my was, gosh. Yes. So it was very severe. And I was very, very hesitant. Uh, until almost the last minute. I did not want to uh, uh, use the CPAP machine. I didn't want to try it before I got these results, of course. (laughs) I had a fear because of uh, things I had heard in the past of how noisy it could be and how how very inconvenient it could be. And uh, once I heard these results, I decided that I had no choice (laughs) but to try it out. So uh, they let me try it. Not only is it uh, smaller and barely makes any noise, but it's very, it's also very like accessible and easy to use. Mm. How's, how's your, how's your sleep been since you, since you actually started using it? My sleep has been so uh, wonderful. Like uh, compared to before I sleep a lot more solid. And another one of my symptoms before I had a lot of daytime sleepiness. Like I could be just randomly, randomly in the middle of watching something or being somewhere. And I just kind of doze off. Like I'd be very, and now I barely have that happen. It's very rare. I feel a lot more energized and it's so, it it was really a blessing for me to, uh, to have that machine right now. Natalie, I have been accused of uh, snoring like a chainsaw from uh, people in my life, and a few folks have actually suggested to me that maybe I should get myself checked out for some sleep apnea uh, due to some of that snoring. Uh, but similar to yourself, I may be a little bit hesitant. So what's some of your advice to people like me who are sometimes overly hesitant to seek out assistance or treatment for a medical issue? <laughs> That's totally understandable because I I was accused of being a chainsaw myself in the last uh, few years, uh, and it's it, it's actually something that can be very scary. But I'm telling anyone here, uh, just to take that uh, um, just to take that step and get tested to at least know because if it's mild, then a person can decide. But sometimes we never know. It can actually be very severe and can lead to very serious um, health conditions. So compared to what it can do, and it can bring so many benefits, and the machine is really not at all as, as scary as what I thought it would be. So I encourage everyone to do it and get tested if there's any questioning about it. Yeah, Natalie, the hot take to come out of this conversation is that breathing and sleeping are important. I think we can agree on that. Very much so. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Natalie, thank you for this. Have a lovely day.
Thank you so much, you as well. That's Moncton community reporter Natalie Fougere. In one minute, Laura Bain has an entertainment report for you. But first, Walmart is adding budget TV brands to their shelves. Mike Dubusky tunes in for another edition of Tech Trends. When you think of Walmart, your mind might not immediately jump to TVs, but maybe it should, says Digital Trends' Phil Nickinson. Hey, when I think of Walmart, I think of everything, and, and TVs are very much a part of that. This week, Walmart paid $2.3 billion to acquire Vizio, the TV manufacturer that's invested heavily in its software in recent years. They now have their own home screen. They now have their own operating system. They now have their own fast channel, their own ad-supported channel, so you can go watch all sorts of TV on your Vizio TV. Nickinson says the ad revenue and user data collected by those systems is likely what interested Walmart, which already makes its own line of TVs. Walmart didn't buy Vizio for the hardware. They didn't buy Vizio, a television manufacturer, for the televisions. It looks like they bought Vizio for the SmartCast operating system and for all the data, for the advertising and, and for the information about what people are watching. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. There there's going to be some new content available for you to watch on your Vizio Walmart TV. Laura Bain, Law & Order Toronto debuts tonight. Oh, someone's got Laura on mute. Either we have Laura on mute or Laura has Laura on mute. Oh, sorry there about we that. Go. That's I think all that was good. Me that did that. That's okay. That's all right. Hey, listen, it's four years into the pandemic and we're still working with the mute buttons. <laughs> I have never claimed to be the most tech savvy, but um, yeah, you know, Dave, there's a lot of filming that happens in Toronto. We had a conversation recently about it actually being voted the best city to live in as a film and television worker. But some of the buzz around this show has to do with Toronto really getting to play itself and shine as Toronto. Toronto, not as a double for another city. And um, people can expect that this show features a largely Canadian cast and production team. And Rogers has actually called the show its biggest investment in Canadian original programming to date. Mm. Mm. So the first season, as you mentioned, which airs tonight, has 10 episodes, and each episode is inspired by a real Canadian news headline, although names and details have been changed, and of course, there's a lot of creative license. I think it could be kind of a fun game to try and figure out if you know what news headline inspired the episode mm, and i'm thinking mm. with your job you would be very good at that game uh you know what i i am not on the crime beat all that hard if, there, if there's one area where i'm not the uh, most news junkie it's certainly on like the true crime or the crime beat i i, I just don't find mm. it particularly interesting uh but that said i used to love law and order like the actual original yeah. law and order before it became law and order acronym after acronym after acronym i used to love like the old school law and order oh yeah me me too I, I haven't really kept up with the show but i definitely was a fan now what we know is that this first episode is going to be based on the mysterious death of gerald cotton i don't know if you're familiar with that case he was the ceo of quadriga canada's largest cryptocurrency enterprise 
Um, but for example, in the show, the company's called Bigaplex. So, okay. Okay. And there's, you know, details changed about kind of how it how it plays out. But, um, you know, we can expect to see some differences from the American version of the show. For example, a different portrayal of police that reflects some of the conversations that have happened in Toronto around policing. So less glorification of kind of police breaking down doors to get the quote unquote bad guy and more sensitivity to racialized police violence. Um, so that's very interesting. And also we can expect to see less guns in the show, of course, because Canada has different mm-hmm. gun control mm-hmm. laws than they do in New York City. And we can also expect to see Toronto's multiculturalism on display. We know the first episode shot scenes in Little India, Chinatown, and Toronto's Yacht Club. So it was- <laughs> all over the place. Um, But, uh, you know, this kind of has me thinking, Dave, I I think I would watch this partly just for the location, the fact that it is shot in Toronto, although I'm also fascinated with New York, where Law & Order is typically based. But do you ever watch things mainly for the location? That's a really good question. Would I watch something because it's based in Toronto? Probably not. That said, if it was based in Montreal, if it was Law & Order Montreal, you might get me a little bit more interested. But it's it's because of the affinity for the city, right? Um, there's, a, there's a show called, I believe it's called Family Law that's based in Vancouver that I sometimes watch with my parents when I'm visiting them. And I love the way that Vancouver, BC is represented and the Vancouver area is represented. It's just like such a gorgeous texture for the show. And if it was something like, I've got an affinity for the city, same thing for Montreal. I, I don't think that Toronto would do it, but I think more generally to your question, it can definitely influence what I would watch. Uh, you heard Amy Amanti reference uh, White Lotus in her fil- in her uh, series review earlier in the hour, and that was a show that just beautifully featured Hawaii, right? And I and I mm-hmm. think about a film like Forgetting Sarah Marshall, which I watched because it was funny, but I always think about the visual aesthetic of Hawaii. Oh yeah, I mean, I would I would like that as well. And there's a show a shot in Halifax called Digstown that it's a great show, but it's also just very cool to see familiar familiar locations. And I will defend myself and say that I I watch Emily in Paris primarily because I just love to see Paris and not necessarily for the (laughs) storylines. Uh, Next best thing to a travel show. (laughs) (laughs) But, but, you know, sometimes I do think about regional authenticity, and and I'm not sure that Mm -hmm. Toronto needs more stories told about it, but I think about a Mm -hmm. show that is representative or used to be representative of your neck of the woods, at least to a certain degree, Trailer Park Boys, right? I used to Mm -hmm. love that show because it felt very Atlantic Canadian. It's one of the reasons why so many people connected to Letterkenny as a show, because it really feels like small-town Ontario. So I do like it when places can be part of the regional storytelling in an authentic Mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like they've really made an attempt to do that with this show. So, you know, as we've said, the first episode airs tonight on City TV. It's at 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, In terms of streaming options, if you want to do that, you're going to have to buy the City TV Plus add-on with Amazon Prime, although there is a free seven-day subscription. You can do that if anyone's just really keen to check it out. Of course, you have to remember to cancel it if you want to. That's always my problem. And the show has not been picked up by any American broadcasters, which is sort of 
of unfortunate. It would be nice to see that two-way flow of mm-hmm. content. Mm-hmm. We watch your SVU. You watch our Law and <laughs> yes. Order Toronto. Uh, Laura, thank you for this. Have a lovely day. Talk to you tomorrow. Uh, not talk to you tomorrow. Talk to you next week. Yes, that's right. Thanks, Dave. That's Laura Bain at the Entertainment Desk. Coming up after the break, it was a big night for Toronto Maple Leafs forward Austin Matthews. Brock Richardson will break it down as part of the sports chat. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv and in audio at amiplus.ca. I'm Dave Brown. It's Thursday, February the 22nd, 2024. Coming up in the second hour of the show, the Zero Project Conference kicked off this week in Vienna, Austria. Marka Flalo and the Access Tech Live crew are on the ground. So he'll tell you all about it. And the Bob Marley biopic, One Love, is the number one film at the North American box office. Entertainment critic Michael McNeely will share a review. But the hour begins talking about sports with Brock Richardson. Beginning in the world of hockey, the Toronto Maple Leafs tamed the Arizona Coyotes 6-3 last night at Mullet Arena, just outside the Phoenix area. But the big story, Brock, is Toronto Maple Leafs forward Austin Matthews notching his 50th goal and 51st goal of the season in front of his home state crowd. Pretty cool stuff from Austin Matthews last night. Yes, and I one of my friends who was uh, somebody who I competed with for a long time uh, put out on X uh, a couple of days before this game and said, great, Austin Matthews is going to score his 50th goal in front of what would be the size of an OHL uh, uh, hockey rink. And I thought to myself, yeah, but I'm kind of on board with this because he can be kind of in front of his friends and family, and that's exactly what happened yesterday. So I, even though it's a small arena, I love it, and I think it's good that he got to do that in front of his family and friends. It's always good when you get to do something in front of the ones you love, so that's also cool. And Dave, a uh, weird stat that I heard yesterday, and I tried to dig this out a little bit more but I couldn't find it aside from listening to Overdrive a little bit uh, yesterday before the uh, 50th goal took place. Austin Matthews apparently leads the league in hit goalposts, hitting them at least 50 times this year, which means, and they were talking about this idea that he could have been at his 50th long before now if even some of those went into the net. He's on pace for... 76 goals this year um yeah i mean he's on a tear and and he's loving life do you think he hits 76 i personally think he falls probably a bit short of that because i think 76 would be a massive massive number 
The way he's playing right now and the number of goals he's scored since the All-Star break makes me think he might eclipse 76. I wonder if he might get to 80, 80 plus this year, which would be the best goal scoring season that's happened in nearly 30 years, which would be pretty darn cool. I, Brock, I want to backtrack to what we were saying about Mullet Arena only holding a little over 4,000 people. Anytime the Maple Leafs or organizations like the Chicago Blackhawks or Montreal Canadiens go to these warmer markets in the wintertime, there's always going to be a contingent of fans who will travel to this game who want to go see their team in a warm environment. But what was really cool last night is that Austin Matthews apparently bought about 200 tickets for his friends and family. And then uh, Leafs forward, uh, rookie forward, Matthew Nyes, ended up buying a couple hundred tickets for his friends and family as well. So there was a huge Leafs contingent in that arena last night. It was almost like it was a home game for the Leafs. Like I think that's what added to the coolness, not just the hometown nature of Austin Matthews scoring his 50th goal for the second time in his career, but the fact that that arena was basically an extension of Rogers of Rogers Arena. No, well, what's 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 the Toronto Arena called? Air Canada Center? I don't care. Scotiabank Arena. Scotiabank Arena. Yeah, some Canadian corporation arena. Yeah, it felt like an extension of some Canadian corporation arena. Yeah. Fair enough, and I agree 100%. I I was less bothered that it was in front of less people, to be honest with you. I didn't really care one way or another, but I thought it was interesting that my ex-teammate brought that up. Something else before we move off of uh, Toronto. Uh, Morgan Riley's been out with that suspension he took uh, last week for that ridiculous cross-check, which we don't have to get into. No, let's not. But the... Uh, Toronto Maple Leafs are now on a five-game winning streak without him. Uh, and over the last two years, they are 19-2-1 and one, uh, without Morgan Riley. So whether that means something or not, that's a stat that I did hear. So, so he's the problem. Stuff. So he's the problem. He's why they don't win in the playoffs. They should just bench him in the playoffs, and then they'll win some more playoff series. Uh, okay. Somebody's got to be blamed in Toronto, according uh, th- to the people. That's right. Everybody, everybody's got to be blamed. Okay, Brock, let's talk about another Canadian hockey team that did not quite have as good a night last night. The Edmonton Oilers fell to the Boston Bruins 6-5 in overtime. Brock, your reaction to a game that was a, a seesaw battle between these two top teams in the NHL. We talked about it earlier this week about having high-scoring games and loving it, and I love this game. Uh, Edmonton came back from a 4-1 deficit and clawed back and got a got a point, which it seemed in the dressing room that g- given the fate that they were in coming back from 4-1, to they seemed, let's say, satisfied that they got the point but wish they had a better fate. Uh, there, interestingly to me, Dave, is that since the 16-game uh, winning streak that everyone was so closely following uh, in uh, in Edmonton, they've only gone uh, four and three since then. So it's kind of an interesting thing. But I loved watching yesterday's game for sure. Four and three still wins you a seven-game playoff series, though. So, you know, that's what matters. Brock, what I like about hockey this time of year is things crystallize a bit. You start separating the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. And when you get a matchup like the Bruins and the Oilers on an evening in Edmonton in February, you know you're watching a game that actually represents something bigger. The Bruins do have one of the best records in the league. The Edmonton Oilers, after their slow start, have been one of the best teams in the league. There's really something about this time of year 
year when you start getting marquee matchups that mean that mean something. It, it isn't to disqualify games in November, but this is the time of the year when you really start getting measuring stick games that mean something. Yeah, 100%. I absolutely agree. And I think this is the point in the season where you really start to see uh, teams, athletes, put it into that second and third third gear. And, and that's usually what happens. And I think people, you know, you, you hear about the dog days of summer in, in baseball. And I believe that with every sport, there is kind of that lull period where it's like, mm, we're kind of in the middle of our season and teams have the talent and individuals have the talent to turn it up a little bit, which I could only wish through my career. If I had the ability to turn it up and turn it down, it was just never that way. But if you're talented enough to do that, uh, more more power to you, for sure. Brock, your uh, hydro bill is going to be super high this month because of all the TV you've been watching, because you've also been keeping a close eye on the Scotties Tournament of Hearts, women's curling. What's the uh, latest from the uh, tournament? Yeah, so let's start with uh, Pool A. We know that Alberta's uh, Selena Sturme is already into the playoffs, and Team Canada's uh, Inerson Rink is already into the playoffs. Uh and then in Pool B, we know that uh, Rachel Holman and Jennifer Jones are also in the playoffs. Top three end up making it to the uh, to the playoff round. There's a lot to be decided today. Uh, lots of people might have the same record, and then it would go into this weird draw uh, draw to the button, you know, algorithm. So not going to get into that. But three draws today uh, really going to mean something for the breakdown of things. And Dave, I love seeing Jennifer Jones uh, really be successful at this event, as we know from. Uh, uh, late last week, early this week, she's going to uh, retire after this event from the women's game, and I just love seeing Jennifer Jones uh, succeed. I still don't think she's going to be uh, able to get the win and get it done. I think there will be some teams that I would put ahead of her, but uh, it's good to see her have some success for sure. Got to pay respect to the legends while they're still playing. There's no doubt about that. Brock, thank you for this. Have a great day. You as well. That's Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk coming up after the break. The Zero Project Conference kicked off this week in Vienna, Austria. Marco Flalo is on the ground with the Access Tech Live crew. We'll tell you all about it. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The Zero Project Conference in Vienna kicked off yesterday. The International Conference has representatives from over 100 countries. They're discussing facets of innovation and where they connect with disability inclusion. Marco Flalo is in Austria for the conference, alongside some of the other gang from Access Tech Live and AMI-audio. Hey, Mark, how's it going? You know, Dave, I can't complain. There are worse places in the world to be. So being in Vienna amongst my peers is a <laughs> highlight of my week. What, what's what's the buzz on the ground? It's, you, you know, you've only been on the ground there for a couple of days and the conference only kicked off yesterday. But what's the buzz so far? 
Uh, the buzz is, I mean, obviously, uh, information, communication, technology, education. Everybody is here to get together and just talk. It's a it's a really cool event, Dave, because it's kind of closed room. It's not open to the public. So people really feel at ease talking about all their innovations, their technologies, their services, and also policy. They're talking a lot about policy and how governments are actually trying to push the envelope when it comes to accessibility and then especially across, obviously, information, communication, technology. Our colleague Andy Frank has attended a couple Zero conferences here and has always come back with utterly glowing reviews. And I know uh, it's been sort of the basis. It's all lies, Dave. Of, it's all it's lies. A, <laughs> uh, it's, it's been the basis of a lot of work that's been done on AMI, AMI audio yeah. as well throughout the year because of the innovations that are being shown off. There's some pretty heavy hitters showing up to an event like this, yeah. thinking about the disability <laughs> perspective. So, who, which organizations are presenting this year? A couple small ones like, you know, Microsoft, Google, Apple. Um, but honestly, sometimes it's more about some of the other companies that you've never heard of before, especially an event like this that is global. We're being introduced to technology in India and in Australia. I mean, across the board, Double Tap's doing their daily podcast here live every single day, talking to some amazing people. We've got some awesome people lined up on Access Tech Live. I don't want to ruin it all, Dave. You're putting me on the spot here. No, but really, really... Big heavy hitters amongst a lot of small companies that are hoping to make an impression on those heavy hitters. What about notable innovators, luminaries, individuals? Have you been stargazing? Have you been hobnobbing, elbow rubbing? Oh, my God. I mean, there's people that I have spoken to a million times that I got to meet firsthand. You know, the Christopher Patnos at Google, the Sarah Harlingers from Apple, and Hector Minto from Microsoft. But honestly, it's about some of the smaller companies that are over my shoulder that are innovating cool products that we're going to talk about on Access Tech Live today, like Dot Lumen, which has, a, you know, a headset that is giving people haptic feedback. Sean Priest went hands-on with that and, and did a feature that's on YouTube and a couple hours from today. So a lot of really, really cool things going on. What's the general theme that you've picked up on? The general theme officially is uh, informa was Andy? information, communication, technology, and education. That's the theme specifically of this event here in Vienna. They do different events throughout the world and in different places about different themes, but that's the focus on this one. So it's really about building those things up. Mark, I know uh, Access Tech Live today will largely be about what's going on at the conference. I know you guys did a special episode yesterday that was really, really excellent. Uh, it's it's super cool. It's just great that you guys are on the ground. It, it, it's a little different than what you did with CES, but you guys are just really present. It's really cool. Well, you know what's interesting, and I compare this to CES. CES is about the technology and about people who are trying to commercialize things, right? People trying to sell stuff. It's less about sales here. It's really about introducing people to what they're doing with hopes of getting support, not only financial support, but support to just promote the products. We have people coming up to us saying, hey, can, can we come on your show to talk about what we're doing? And we're, of course, open arms. We're like, yeah, please tell us what you're doing. We want to know what you're doing. So it's a little bit different of a vibe. And as I said, you know, it's a, because it's invite only, you have people who are a bit more at ease. So when they sit down at these conference sessions, it's really about listening to people talk and share their experiences and talk to each other. Mm. Let's uh, pivot off the conference for a second and talk about sure. Vienna. How's uh, Vienna treating you? You're, you're a well-traveled man. Marco Flalo has been all over this the world. This is my first time, though, in Vienna, and I must say the first day I was treated to wonderful schnitzel at a small place that is not a, on, the, on the tourist map. Let's just say that. Um, I have not put my dress on to sing some uh, Julie Andrews. I hope to get to that before I leave on Saturday. <laughs> the hills are alive here, Dave. <laughs> what's uh, what, what are you going to try to do beyond the conference here? Like, what's you said it's your first time. What, beyond pretending to be Julie Andrews and singing the hills are alive, <laughs> what, what's on the agenda? 
honestly, when it comes to Europe, it's about the architecture for me. It's walking around and seeing some of these buildings that have been here way longer than even my ancestors and trying to figure out my way around and hopefully not miss a couple subway stops. Thanks, Grace. Um, on the way back to the hotel afterwards. Uh, the old world. Well, Mark, I can tell that you're busy over there, so I'll let you go. Not at all. <laughs> Have a great show today. Safe travels. Enjoy yourself. Thanks, Dave. That's Mark Aflalo. He's one of the hosts of Access Tech Live. You can find another one of their special episodes today at noon on the ground from the Zero Project Conference. But you find him every Thursday on AMI-tv at noon Eastern. Speaking of AMI programming, this weekend on The Pulse, Joita Gupta chats with Carly Friedman of the University of Washington, go Huskies, about disability and intimacy. That's The Pulse, weekends at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. You can also find the podcast on all major podcasting platforms, including YouTube. Coming up next, the Bob Marley biopic, One Love, is out in theaters. It's number one at the box office. Entertainment critic Michael McNeely has a review. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. A little bit of Bob Marley for you there because Bob Marley, One Love, dropped in theaters last week. It's the number one film at the North American box office. The uh, reviews have not been as kind as the box office numbers. I've got a clip here from the trailer that was released by Paramount. It requires a little bit of pre-description. There are various scenes, including Bob Marley and the Wailers taking back, talking backstage, recordings in studio with their backup singers, doing press interviews, meet and greets. Bob Marley is seen spending time with family and fans. There's also army soldiers on the streets of Kingston, Jamaica. Let's roll the clip. From the beginning. Reggae is a people music. People coming together. Ooh, yeah. You know you're a superstar. Right. I'm a superstar. Going on. We're you can't separate the music and the message. Cause every day we pay the price. And what is the message? Peace. Entertainment critic Michael McNeely has some thoughts on One Love. Hey, good morning, Michael. Nice to chat with you today. Hi, good morning to you too. So there could be a lot to talk about, about Bob Marley's life and career. What aspect of his life does the biopic cover? The biopic covers Bob Marley's life from 1976 to 1978, where he performed in two 
two concerts with the whales. And those two concerts were attempting to unify Jamaica and to promote peace because Jamaica was heavily divided by two political factions with the various Medines killing and beating up the other. Michael, as you took in this film, you ran into some accessibility issues. What happened? Well, this is an interesting one because it's an accessibility issue that I haven't faced before. With the captioning that I was watching in the theater, the Jamaican patrol was transcribed verbatim. So I had challenges understanding what was being said because the spelling was from the Jamaican way of speaking. So often I had to sound out the words to understand what they meant, and I wasn't able to keep up. So I think it would be good to watch this on home video where I can pass after each line that I'm not sure about and try and suss it out. I can see where that would really take you out of the storytelling and the film-watching experience. What were your initial thoughts on the movie? I tried to keep up as best as I could, and I also reviewed the plot afterwards to make sure I didn't miss anything. Um, I feel like there's a disconnect between Bob Marley's songs and the reality that was not portrayed in the film. So for example, I was talking about the political contest in Jamaica in the 70s. It was not a good place to live for many people. Children often had to uh, go without wearing shoes because if they wore shoes, they may be killed for the shoes that they were wearing. So the movie didn't really seem to reflect the political reality. It was more like a handout film. It was showing Bob Marley just relaxing and smoking ganja and coming up with his music. But that just, that doesn't belie the reality that I know about or that I've learned about in the last week. These, these songs were reflective of the time. They're not just fun songs. They're, they're trying to fight for world peace. So I wanted to see more of that. I wanted to see the lines of the songs play with the actual political reality, as opposed to Bob Marley just had enough. The film is getting mixed reviews. What are other critics saying? Some of the critics agree with what I'm saying now, but others are saying that the film seems to be devoid of any originality, which is rather sad, because Bob Marley is one of the most original artists of our time, and the film should be reflective of the work that he's done. There are some critics are wondering if this film is intended to sell records for the label or to cash in some nostalgia. Some critics are some critics wonder how the director of King Richard fell so far with this. So like you said earlier in this segment, the critics have not been kind to one love, which is kind of ironic given the title.
Michael, even though you mentioned the actual time period of the film is a fairly short sample size, there's a lot of time jumping in that. How did you feel about the way time was handled in the movie? To be honest, I was confused as well. In addition to trying to keep up with the subtitles, the time jumps were really doing me in. Um, I think sometimes for a biopic to be successful, it's good to just focus on one thing to ensure that everyone understands the importance of that point in history. I do get why the film was trying to do flashbacks to Bob Marley's childhood because they want to show how he, as a child, grew up to be the man that he ultimately was doing the concerts. But I think you can still show that without doing a flashback. So, for example, if we were doing a biopic on me and we chose to focus on my appearance, it's on now with Dave Brown, you could still find ways to talk about my life through the appearances on Dave Brown without actually having to do a flashback. Mm. I think that would tell me that you're confident about the time period that you're depicting. And I really do think that they picked a good time period from 1976 to 1978. There were two concerts that made history. That's that's enough for a movie. Just leave it there. So that's that's one of my challenges. It's, it's like a student that's trying to write a paper, but he tries to put everything in the paper and the kitchen sink. So along those lines, you and I have talked about this before. I believe it was in the context of the Elvis biopic a couple of years ago. What's the best way to produce a biopic when in theory there are a lot of stories you can tell, there are a lot of strings that you can pull? What's the best way to tell the story in a biopic? One of the best examples I have is Jackie. Jackie focused on... Jackie, just after JFK was assassinated. Um, I mean, they think, you know, from the crib to the deathbed has been overdone. There's too much of that. Um, and it's important to focus on the time. It's important to focus on the contest. And as our producer, Andrea mentioned, there's so many different stories to tell with Bob Marley, including the story of Bob Marley and the Wheelers, which deserves its own movie. And as she told me that there was no mention, hardly any mention of the Wailers, which is a requirement of understanding Bob Marley himself. So I think there was just a lack of focus, and I think there was, you know, for example, you could make plans for making a, a Bob Marley cinematic universe, if you will, and you would tell movies about different parts of his life, and you would use the Wailers and tell different movies about them. Because as Andrea mentioned, um, Sam Mendes is planning movies and all the Beatles, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so I think it's just important to to tell all to tell everyone's story authentically, but also to remember you can't tell everything. You can't tell everyone everything. You need to sort of pick and choose what you want to tell because you only have our attention for two hours at most. I'm a pretty smart guy. This dreadlock doesn't sound too difficult to untangle. I get the impression you do not recommend One Love. It, it's complicated because when I was leaving the phone, I saw some kids dancing in front of the poster, and they appeared to me to be Jamaican as well. So 
I just think that this movie is about a cultural hero and this this we can't we can't take away that from other people. But I feel like we could have done better too to respect this cultural hero. And that's that's why I'm a little bit sad about this film is that we had a chance to get it right, but hopefully we'll get more chances in the future. But this film has a great soundtrack. I I saw you dancing. Um, with the trailer and does more of that in the movie. So I think if you just go in with your expectations and you put up a place saying that I'm just going to listen to this music that I'm going to dance and can have fun and I might learn something that's that's not bad in my book that's that's better than nothing, right? A hundred percent. I uh, plan to go this weekend and there may be a stop at a dispensary along the way. Michael, thank you for this. Have a lovely day. You too, and by all means, let's keep telling stories about artists and dreamers, because without them, we don't have the world that we live in. Right on, that's true. Bob Marley, One Love, available in theaters across the country. Coming up next, it's a roundtable chat with Alex Smythe, Ramya Amuthan, and Nazreen Abdel-Majid. But first, here's the Parasport update with Greg Westlake. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Hello and welcome back to the Parasport Update, produced in collaboration with the Canadian Paralympic Committee. I'm Greg Westlake. Canada's para-athletics team kicked off their international season in Dubai for the first World Para-Athletics Grand Prix of 2024. Katie Pegg captured gold in the F46 women's shot put, and Liam Stanley sees silver in the men's T37-38, 1500 meters. Austin Smeek placed fourth in the T54 men's 100, 400, and 800 meters while Cody Forney raced to a fourth in the men's T51 200 meter. Leaving the Arabian Desert, we land in the Canadian Rockies for the FIS Para-Alpine Kimberley Race Series and National Championships. In downhill, Kale Erickson won the visually impaired class and Kurt Oatway took gold in the men's sitting category in both downhill and Super G. On the women's side, it was double silver for Tess Besant and Katie Combaluzier in Super G and downhill. Staying in the Rockies, we go a mile high for the 2024 Rocky Mountain Cup as Canada's men's wheelchair basketball team continues their preparation for the Repassage Tournament in April. Canada opened with a pair of wins over the U.S. starting group play 2-0. Check back next week to see how the team finished in Colorado Springs. And that's our time for this edition of the Parasport Update, presented by AMI-audio. Check back next week for more news from the world of adaptive sports. have something you want to say to the show? Do you want to get in touch with now with Dave Brown? There are lots of ways for you to do it. Social media is always a great option. At Accessible Media on X. At Accessible Media on X. It's At Accessible Media on TikTok. At Accessible Media on TikTok. It's a little bit different for Facebook and Instagram. At Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. At Accessible Media Inc. on Instagram. Email's an option for you as well. Send your thoughts over. Feedback at ami.ca. Feedback at ami.ca. Or you can pick up the phone and your voice can be heard from coast to coast to coast on the mighty airwaves of AMI-TV. 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. Let your voice be heard.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown. Don't forget, you can vote on the daily poll at some of those points of contact as well, asking you all about political speeches and whether, you're not, whether or not you think politicians should be doing regular televised speeches or long-form radio interviews or maybe even YouTube stuff. We're talking about going beyond the clips. How would you feel about more long-form political speeches out there in the media universe? Good, bad, or maybe you just don't care? Let's uh, look ahead to this afternoon, 2 p.m. Eastern time. Kelly and Rumya hitting the airwaves for another edition of their show. Rumya Amuthan can give you a taste of what's to come. Hey, good morning, Rumya. Good morning, Dave. Yes, we're going to revisit the show we talked about a couple weeks ago with Greg David. Okay, so Fern Lullum is bringing it up. Um, it's a show, she's calling it Magical, that hit the UK in November, and it's going to launch on TVO on February 24th here in Canada. And uh, it's about, you know, the children who are being tested for their independence and uh, their learning uh, abilities to learn to be independent by parents sending them on errands. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, and we're talking about toddlers, by the way. Uh, Mary Mamma <laughs> Lady is back to continue her discussion on uh, cooking disasters and how to prevent them from happening. We're moving on to baking tips. And on our weekly roundtable, we have Know Your Rights contributor Danielle McLaughlin, who's always got interesting opinions about <laughs> a range of topics. So it'll be fun to put her uh, in the victim chair for the roundtable today. No one has ever accused Danielle McLaughlin of not having a point of view. That Never. is for sure. <laughs> In any stage of life, I'm sure. Yeah. 2 p.m. Eastern time on the mighty airwaves of AMI-tv. Don't forget, you can also download the podcast on demand by looking for Kelly and Ramya. And when you're there, find the Now with Dave Brown podcast as well. Like, subscribe, and review. Share with your friends. All that good stuff as well. Alex Smythe, you've got a topic for the roundtable here all about Starbucks. A little coffee shop talk on the roundtable today. Yeah, Dave, because the whole uh, reason why Starbucks is a topic of conversation is they are testing out a new store design that's going to offer more accessibility and a more inclusive experience for customers. So the inclusive spaces framework is designed to create a more accessible environment within their stores. They're testing it out currently with the first store based in Washington, D.C. And, and so some of the offerings will include, you know, large point-of-sale screens and improved lighting for folks with vision loss. Uh, there was a photo included within the uh, kind of release, and it really shows a much brighter, uh, more kind of a warm wood-toned space as opposed to what the current kind of Starbucks environment is, kind of that darker, like, stone aesthetic. So I think much more warmer brighter and inviting in terms of uh, light and contrast. So the company said that all new and renovated uh, stores that are owned by the company will begin to have this new kind of design aesthetic as it rolls out. Ones that are like inside other locations, things like ones that are like pop-up stores or small locations, those adaptations may come later down the road. But uh, so this is a big push from Starbucks to create a more welcoming, inclusive and accessible store for its users. And I wanted to kind of find out from everybody on the round table currently what is the biggest accessibility kind of issue or problem you come up with when you go to a starbucks and do you think these redesigns are going to address that Nisreen, let's start with you 
I think these redesigns are such a big move, and uh, I think a lot of people would benefit from that. There are so many issues when it comes to these uh, accessibility features that um, we kind of run into on a daily basis. I mean, we, we love coffee shops, and the problem with for me, is the the lighting. The lighting is always the issue mm, because yeah. everybody loves the aesthetics of a coffee shop when it's dim. And for us, I speak for myself. Yeah, speak for yourself because I, I like I, as someone who's light sensitive, I, I prefer a darker yeah, store. I speak for myself is that I can barely see like around me when it's dark. So I'm uh, I'm light sensitive, but I can also like. Uh, <laughs> Both the ways. Nazreen's impossible. It's impossible to find the balance <laughs> for Nazreen. I'm a picky person when it comes to this <laughs> stuff. Um, but uh, another issue is the screens. I mean, I would love bigger screens to look at. I have to order the same drink every time because that's all I know. And I'm scared to try a new drink. And I'm scared to ask, okay, what's, what, how, like, tell me about a good drink. Yeah, I, I want the Mocha Lapa Flaka Flinka Ding Dong drink. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's the thing. Like, I there's so many there's so many types of drinks, and it's always like a long list of what to add in there. But I always stick to the same drink because I'm always scared to ask for a new drink. What's your I order? See, what's your order? It's the uh, Cali style iced coffee uh, macchiato. Okay, so that's pretty simple. That rolls yeah, off the tongue pretty, pretty simple, clean. That's pretty good. Basic. I like that. I like that one. That's clean. It's clean. I, I would. And every time I go to Starbucks, I'm like, you know what? I want to try a new drink. Uh, drink. I want to try a new drink. And I'm always. I don't know what's in there. I can't see the. I can't see the screens. I can't see the chalkboard that they write oh, on. Oh, the chalkboard's brutal. Yeah. So it, it's complicated. Yeah. Or or you end up going into the app where the font is teensy tiny, and you can you still can't see what's in that version of the drink inside the app. And then of course, if you order from the app, if you're not in there when they call your order, uh -huh. then you have to go and try to touch a bunch of different people's orders to oh see if your God, name's yes. written on it, not accessible at all. Sometimes what I do in that situation is I walk in and I just start screaming, for Dave, for Dave, for Dave, <laughs> and uh, people don't appreciate yeah, that, the and then I'm asked stickers. to leave. That's, 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 why, that's why I'm not allowed in the Starbucks in the, in the plaza anymore. They said, oh, you're too disruptive. You kill the vibe. Uh, Ramya, what's your, what's your experience <laughs> accessibility-wise walking into Starbucks, Starbizzle? It's hard to believe that you're the loudest thing in that Starbucks day, but whatever. Um, so, <laughs> Are you accusing the high school students who sometimes make a lot of noise and being a little loud? Is it high school? I didn't know. Anyway, I um, have many problems. The first kind of overarching issue is that n not all Starbucks are made the same, right? That is so correct. Yeah, same for every kind of coffee shop. I love the vibe of ideally, you know, I imagine myself walking into a Starbucks and going to get my order and then sitting down nicely at a nice window seat where I can people watch and get on my laptop and, you know, the thing. But um, unfortunately, that's never the case because I don't know where any of the seats are. I don't know what the seating arrangements are from Starbucks to Starbucks. Uh, walking mm -hmm. in, like we have a, what do they call it? Like a flagship Starbucks store. It's huge and it's noisy. And there are lots of different areas of bar stool seating by the windows. Then there's like that huge kind of counter space that's like gorgeous that you can kind of sit by or wait and stand around for your Starbucks order. But you, I never know where to line up, where the cash <laughs> it's is. It's true. Where, it's so true. Yeah. 
there are random pillars in the middle that you're supposed to navigate around. And I'm thinking, oh, is the lineup on this side or that side? So there's just a lot of issues from the get-go. And I'm not sure, Alex, to answer your question about whether their um, list of suggestions and, and revamps are going to help me with these issues. Like, I need tactile indicators to know where I'm walking to. Kind of like the subway system in Toronto, right? Where you know you're headed towards an elevator or a staircase mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. the subway platform where the train doors are. Um, and I don't think that's going to be aesthetically pleasing for Starbucks. But and or a, you know, a concierge service where when you walk in, there's somebody who like a host can help you find your seating or take you to your um, your order uh, pickup desk. Ramya, no, Ramya, that's two days in a row you've advocated for greeters in stores. I know. I didn't know I was bougie like this. Like next thing I'm going to ask for a valet. Oh, know. hello, Miss Hamilton. It's glad to have you here today. May I please offer you a warm coffee mug for your troubles? Please? Um, please. I would tip. Then let's bring the other coffee <laughs> All right. Oh, I still have that $5 bill in my pocket. I still have that $5 bill in my pocket. It's it's ready to, it's ready to be used if necessary. Uh, Ramya, what's your coffee? What's your order? What's, what's your order when you go to the coffee I shop? I usually... Uh, in the summertime, I like to get a vanilla bean frap, no whip, very basic. And then in the winter, I get a um, vanilla latte, but only half a pump of vanilla. Very basic as well. Y'all uh, y'all know <laughs> that my preference is black coffee, but and I'm willing to say this on air. I don't care if they're unwilling Starbucks. to sponsor. I, their coffee is horrendously bad. Uh, I cannot drink it black. It requires one milk and at least one Splenda to be uh, passable. Yeah. Sorry, Starbucks. I understand if you don't want to sponsor the show. That's all right. Um, Alex... <laughs> Uh, what's what's your vibe? I kind of explained mine to you. I don't like the uh, I don't like the the yelling or the the stacking of your order, and it's hard to know whose is whose, especially if you use the app. And that's one of the reasons why I typically only order drip coffee when I'm at Starbucks because I know they're going to hand it to me right there at the cash at the quiche. Mm. Yeah, so for me, like, I always struggle with, with my vision. It's always the, the aesthetic of the store. It's being very dark and, you know, it's low contrast, things like that. So I I'm, am excited about, like, this change because it looks like it's going to be a lot brighter, a lot more clear where to navigate. The issues I always come up against, and, and this is uh, something that, uh, you know, uh, has been mentioned already, is the fact that, like, the seating arrangement and the fact where it's, like, where the counter ends and the seating begins is mm -hmm. usually very close. So, like, you get a bunch of, a bunch of people just kind of standing around and waiting, and then, you know, the, the, serve, the like, kind of order counter where you have, okay, well, here are online orders and here are, like, in-store pickup orders. I would love those to be separate. Like, I know certain restaurants and, and places will have that, that they have, okay, if it's an online order, it's at this area, or if it's just, like, an in-store one, it's right here. Because then you can be nearby, and you can wait, and they'll call your name, and you can be there right away instead of, as you said, Dave, you're going through rummaging, trying to pick out which order is yours, you know, especially if you didn't hear it. Where's or my breakfast so. sandwich? <laughs> yeah, exactly, and just swiping someone else's uh, order by mistake. I would never, so. I would never, and I certainly <laughs> wouldn't blame my legal blindness for that when I do. Mm -mm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, no, don't go for an upgrade. Oh, this has extra bacon on it or something. Who knows? Uh, but uh, yeah, so those, that's usually like, those are my biggest pet peeves. So I, I feel certainly at least some of those will be addressed with what I've, I've been able to gather from this redesign. The big thing is like, let's just keep the seating area in like the counter space, keep those separate. Like, let's have a bit of gap. So, you know, we have people kind of standing or, or forming a line in the right area and then you're not kind of backing up into people with seats and things like that. Like, let's let's kind of make that a, a priority yeah, as well. Yeah, the seating arrangements have always been so messy. You got the you got mm -hmm. the the bar counter, you got the stools, you got the 
couches and and you don't know where's where and what's what and you don't know where to navigate it's it's always all over the place i feel like 90% of starbucks is like that every a lot of starbucks that i've been to is like that yeah, cramped, right? Like, the, the, yeah. a lot of these places, they don't feel comfortable. They feel cramped, which is also one of the reasons why I don't like hanging out there, even once I've even once I've got the coffee uh, in hand. All right, I, I, I almost think there's sort of a therapy couch question to address here for the four of us as people with disabilities. And the idea of not going to a Starbucks, but going to a new place in general, the notion of familiarity, it's one of the reasons why I have really struggled with embracing my life in the city of Toronto because there's just so many places that I'm not familiar with. And sometimes, you know, you, 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 pull, on, you pull on your big boy pants and then you go and you do it. But Ramya, I will say that, like, as a person who's legally blind, who does not like feeling socially awkward, I'm always a little reticent to go to a new place, even if I hear it's awesome. Dave, this is you're speaking my language. I went to Chipotle. There's a Chipotle where we work, right? And I went there every single day for like three months when I first started working at AMI because I did not want to go anywhere else. Chipotle is easy. You walk in, you go across the, uh, you know, fast food counter, get your thing and leave. And even though there are all these other wonderful places and I'm a huge foodie, I did not feel comfortable because it's usually, you know, other customers who have to help you out and there's so much awkwardness of like oh that's the line oh no you're at the back of the oh no don't worry it's okay that you're right in front of me go ahead you go first and I just hate that kind of dance um and it's the same thing in my area lots and lots of coffee shops and cafes for me to explore but I keep going in the same two because they're familiar with me yeah, I'm familiar yeah. with the space and I don't want to have you know every day you don't feel like doing that putting on your big girl pants and and navigating yeah. a new spot. yeah where's the bathroom right like i'm at a bar right. where's the bathroom and like they're like where's oh the sir front door? oh yeah oh, where's the front door <laughs> no like that's such a great example in this dream like like i remember i was in vancouver a couple of years ago and i was like oh this restaurant looks cool and then i thought i was trying to go in the front door i was opening i was trying to open a window and then instead of going in and admitting my shame i was like yep. okay we're just not going to go there i'm too embarrassed we're going to mm -hmm. find somewhere where the more clear door. Nazreen, where are you at? Where are you at with the sort of like therapy-esque question about maybe the uh, familiarity and seeking of comfort rather than new experience as a person I with feel, a disability? I feel the same way. Just like the idea of getting the same drink, I feel the same way about a new environment just to navigate, to, to learn my surroundings, to learn the menu. Um, but however, I would be down to go to a new environment if somebody was also down with me you know what I yeah, mean yeah 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 like essentially like, having a guide right if, if some yeah exactly if a friend wants to go with me I'll be like okay let's go let's go together let's navigate this this uh, <laughs> place together let's learn this menu together but alone I most likely would not do that well, as someone who's deeply lonely, unlovable, and unpopular, this is the problem with my life. This is why I have to hang out at the same places, and then I don't get to meet anybody new, and the <laughs> process repeats itself. Uh, Alex, uh, what about you? I, I think there's been a little bit of agreement here, but I feel like you've got a bit more of an adventurous spirit than the three of us. Uh, yeah, you know, I how I manage it is I will do kind of the, the pre-scout, so to speak. Pre-scout, so yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'll pull up the website. I'll look at the menu. I'll kind of, like, figure out ahead of time. It's like, okay, I, I know I can order this. They have this. This sounds good. Like, I'm going to, like, mentally check my order. And then oftentimes, too, what I'll do if I'm trying to figure out where it is, what the entrance looks like, 
I'll pull up Google Maps and take a look. And yes, I will yes. even look nice, at like nice. some kind of map out, okay, what is it gonna look like as I turn the corner, this block, okay, this is gonna be where it is. Now, and if there's photos inside, oh, I can get a sense of what the layout is like. So it, it's not that a, a unwillingness to try something new, but it's just like, I need to prepare myself. <laughs> I wanna True. go in with all the information, get my scouting report in. Okay, this is what the <laughs> I should expect it to look like. This is what the menu is gonna look like. This is what the journey there is gonna look like. And then yeah. then I feel confident and comfortable enough to go and do it. Obviously curveballs can come up uh, any time there. And I may like on the fly change, change my mind. If I see something that I can identify on the menu or, or, or whatnot on the boards to be like, oh, that's new. I want to try that instead, but I'll always have an order ready in my back pocket. I had I had that experience last week where I thought I pre-scouted properly and I was going to a bar in Midtown that was listed as on Eglinton. So as I looked oh, at the no. picture, I was like, oh, perfect, Eglinton right there, fantastic. And then I start walking by what I think is the entrance and I just see a closed business. And I'm thinking Ooh. to myself like, mm, wait a minute, my pre-scouting didn't quite work as I thought it did. Uh, now, I later found out the entrance to the place was on Mount Pleasant, even though it was listed as an Eglinton address. But what I did is I did a lap around the block to make myself not feel awkward at all or backtrack <laughs> or seem strange and then popped into the dip enter to get like a bottle of water. I was like, no, no, no. This was planned all along. This is not my own ignorance, Nizreen. <laughs> That's so funny. So I have a question. Weirdo so would you here. would you guys prefer Uber Eats than, you know, facing all of these... <laughs> Yeah, all I'll gladly complaints that were yeah, yeah, I'll, gla <laughs> I'll gladly pay the service charge not for social awkwardness wow. rum yet. Absolutely. I've Uber Eats off of so many places on Bayview, which is where I live. But, like I've tried all of Bayview through Uber Eats. I'm like, imagine how good this food would be, fresh and in person, but no way. I'm not going to go exploring. Yeah, if Uber Eats wants to sponsor the show, I can full-blown endorse that. <laughs> not Just a little bit of looking through my history will uh, we'll show that one through and through. Hey, Nazreen, great to have you in studio today. Thanks for stopping by. Well, thanks. It's nice to be here. Yeah, always a pleasure hanging out with Nazi in person. You've been hanging out doing some work with uh, the Double Tap gang and the access tech live crew as part of a, the zero conference that's super cool yeah it's been super fun yeah right on so you have a great day here at the office don't steal my desk again i'll be very mad at you if you steal my desk again mm, i'll be knows? very very mad at you <laughs> Ramya. maybe i'll see you later this afternoon yes you will and alex i will talk to you in a meeting in just a couple of minutes Sounds good. <laughs> That's all the time there is for the show today. Don't worry, things kick off again tomorrow morning on the mighty airwaves of AMI-tv, 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Don't forget, you can always catch the show live at amiplus.ca. Audio only, though. Audio only at amiplus.ca, which means you don't get to appreciate my freshly grown and growing goatee. The soft launch is still on. Been getting some compliments, so it may hang around. Until tomorrow, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.